My first memory of Silver Lake is from 1991 or two or something. I was in college, and a friend and I went to this club called The Peace Pipe, which was at Rudolfo's, which is now this restaurant called Home on the corner of Fletcher and Riverside. I remember driving that long exit ramp off the two freeway. I remember the dark bar filled with young musicians, poets. It was a super diverse crowd, and the music, the music was amazing. DJs would play old soul records back to back, and then somebody would stand up with a guitar or saxophone and start playing along. Before you knew it, the DJ had walked away and a seven-piece band was playing. The music never stopped. I first moved to Silver Lake a few years later. I had a little one-bedroom coach house off Griffith Park Boulevard. It was a beautiful Silver Lake apartment with the wood floors and all that matchy-match tile in the kitchen and bathroom. Lots of deco details. We laughed when the landlady, one of those Encino 70-year-olds with the chunky gold jewelry and see-through shirts and extremely pert double Ds, she raised the rent to 600 a month. We were the first artists priced out of Silver Lake, we said, as we packed up and moved to Echo Park. I have this other memory of Silver Lake. It's not my first, but it's really early on. must have been 1993. I was at the old Sunset Junction Street Fair. It was one of those blazing hot street fair days, and a friend led me into this kind of magical oasis. We had tacos from the taco stand, and then suddenly we were on this isolated hill, kind of behind, I think. It was this really gorgeous space, kind of like a courtyard, but grassy and hilly with these giant stands of bamboo. I remember eating my tacos there and just feeling at peace. And for the longest time, I could never find my way back. I went looking for it a bunch of times, and it wasn't until like 10 or 15 years later when I sort of absentmindedly wandered into Cliff's Edge, a restaurant at the corner of Sunset Boulevard and Edgecliff. It's a place hiding in plain sight. It's this little boring building with a back entrance that opens onto, you guessed it, a beautiful terraced patio with decks and twinkling string lights. Turns out, the space is sort of legendary. 3652 Sunset Boulevard was a rock club at one point called Enter the Dragon. Apparently it was very hip back in the 80s. Someone told me Rick Rubin and the Beastie Boys were regulars. Before that, it was The Jungle, one of the street's many gay clubs. You know, it's funny how a place changes hands. Businesses come and go, especially in the restaurant and nightlife business. For five years, from 1991 to 1996, including when I first wandered in, this building took a break from entertaining. Those years were really hard for LA. The riots in 92, earthquake in 94, all on this backdrop of AIDS. A group of HIV positive people leased this space in 91 and called it Being Alive, a place where anyone with HIV could come and be accepted. A man named Walt Centerfit helped organize it. So Being Alive came together for three reasons. And first was just for social support and to get people out of being isolated in their homes and being depressed to being around other people where they could be accepted and where people were in the same boat. Secondly, we came together for mutual information and fact-sharing. And thirdly, um, we came together for advocacy, for being able to uh, identify, um, you know, not as pariahs, not as victims, but as people living with HIV, as people who had a right to full participation in life and to be treated with dignity and respect and to be at the table when decisions were made for us. So that's why Being Alive came together. Was the entrance always through the courtyard and the then cor- into the The entrance was always through the courtyard. There was one, there were, we, frankly, some of our people, particularly who had been in this area historically, were a little afraid that there would be bias and physical harassment even of people 
not only for being gay, but for being known as being HIV positive and could be, pe people still had the kind of hysteria that maybe in later days we were associated more recently with Ebola or something where that it was a fear and an unknown, a con contagion, and people felt incredibly isolated. Um, and stigmatized, and they didn't. And many often were rejected by their families. Uh, many were rejected by their faith communities. Maybe were rejected by their profession or their workplace. Um, even if they weren't physically kicked out, they were made to feel like pariahs. Um, we had a zine called "Disease Pariah News" for those who wanted to try to reclaim a, a little bit of a counter push. Um, at that point, there was really virtually no hope. Uh -huh. So, in, so, so, given all the, given that climate, and given um, just how people were feeling, the isolation, and perhaps even endangerment, what was it like for people to walk through this gate and come into this courtyard? It was an amazing space. There was a sense of family and a sense of strength in numbers, uh, and a sense that this is a home. We would have Sunday night socials here, which became quite popular in the early and mid-90s where HIV-positive people and our friends could come here and just hang out on a, on a Sunday night to have a social space that was not a gay bar where everybody was positive or at least where you presumed uh, that your status was not going to be a barrier or a, um, the other shoe waiting to drop. Um, and people would be mingling around here and there would be anywhere from 50 to 250 people in this space, hanging out around um, these raised decks which line the back areas. I would see people that would be coming in who were shy and nervous and somebody else would kind of look out for them or kind of go over and just reach out. Um, I remember when the Sunset Junction Fair was here, and maybe it was the same weekend that you <laughs> talked about remembering, but I remember one time we had a, a barbecue set up out here. Um, my uncle, who was 85 years old, visiting from New York, who had come out at 77, and who was just amazed because he'd never seen so many, such a variety of lesbians and gay men and Latinos and Asian Americans and, and African Americans and white people working together. We, we, we had Mary Lucy, who was one of the, the founders of Women Alive and the women's programming here, was, was hanging over a barbecue. And she said, damn it, my tits are going to get on fire if I don't figure out how to cool down this charcoal. And everybody cracked up and we all squirted some water on the flame. And, and, and then we all went back to serving more food. And then we ended up coming back here in this courtyard and just flopping down. There were kids playing on the hill. There were some people that were really sick, you know, that had permanent IV lines in. There were other people who were robust and healthy. Some of us were, you know, chubby and fat as big as the side of a barn. And there were other people who were rail thin. And I just said, um, you know, <laughs> this epidemic has really been hell, but the kind of human connectedness that it caused us and evoked people to bring out from themselves is really almost miraculous. And we all sat around here and just 
while the light the night away uh, with with laughing with each other with talking about what a crazy world it was and what a fun day we'd had. Was this a was 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 this a happy place? Um, certainly had a lot of happiness in it. <laughs> there was a lot of laughter here, and there was a lot of you know shouting or singing or music. Um, overall, to say it's a happy place, I think probably wouldn't capture the whole reality, because we were always like, you know, it's like with with my partner Jorge who came to being alive right within his first month of being in LA and who died here and we had his memorial service here. We had tremendously rich and loving and happy times together, but it was always under the cloud that death was going to part us rather sooner than later. So people say, are you happy? And I said, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't have not done it if I'd have known what was going to happen. There was always sadness, sometimes bitterness, anger, resentment. What the fuck's going on? How, you know, how, why this is happening? So I think that, to some extent, that was like the, the, the whole story here. There was tremendous uh, joy and happiness, particularly when people were kind of freed from their isolation and loneliness into senses of community and we had art classes and music groups and theater trips and and hikes and all kind of different ways of expressing togetherness but people are always getting sicker Do you remember, I mean, you talked to this, this was the first time that you've been here since it closed. Do you remember that last time that you were here and sort of uh, what, what happened and what it felt like? Just sadness that, uh, because I was sorry that we hadn't figured out a way to stay. This is a really amazing space. I mean, I'm glad that somebody's still using it for something rather than that it's been torn down and developed. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty charged to kind of relive those times because, you know, when you're looking back on it, it's so painful. I lost 77 friends that I know and have on a list, and including partners, and, and many of them were in or passed through this space. So it's good to, to go back and remember that times but I'm sure glad it's they're over. I joke about all the different lives I've lived up and down this one stretch of Sunset Boulevard. That first Silver Lake apartment? Three lifetimes ago. Then there was my Echo Park period, the apartment my close friends had above the corner of Franklin in New Hampshire. We had some epic times there. You know, it's funny driving around places you've known, 
all the different houses you've had dinner in, held and crashed parties, the one-night-stand bedrooms you catch glimpses of while you're waiting for the light to change. Our college friend had this amazing two-bedroom over on Hoover, where he nursed me back to health after my college relationship dissolved. Man, I miss that place. There's a stop sign on the corner now, so I always try to catch a peek through the front window when I'm stopped there. The other day, I took a shortcut around traffic, and I ended up right outside the first apartment my wife and I lived in. At first, I was confused because I couldn't find it. But then I saw. It had been torn down to make one of those white, concrete, modern things. Did it feel erased? Sort of. But also not really. I mean, we lived there, what, for six years? I remember the floors were so bowed, balls would actually roll from one side of the room to the other and back. It probably made a ton of sense to tear that place down. Our memories had walked away years ago. If you ever go over to West Silver Lake Boulevard, where all the construction's happening right now, there's a joke that Eve Brenner will tell you about. But you gotta go quick before it's gone. You see the tree with the white, it's clear of bark. It's like a double tree. Right in front of it is the back of a glider. Like a chair, like a glider? Yeah, it's a two, two or three seater and you sit and you glide. Sure. So there's the back of it. Oh yeah, I can see it. From okay, here. this sure. is what happened. Is that your glider? <laughs> Eve bought a new glider for her back porch, and rather than put the old one out on the street, they thought they'd put it out there where people could use it, facing the reservoir. Because of the construction, it was all open. A lovely place to sit and watch the birds. But here's the funny part. The next day, they put this yellow caution tape along the edge there, and we're not supposed to go in <laughs> the next day. So, you know, we, we had one day where we could go in there and sit on it and look like... <laughs> well, now there's a big... So was it, was it where this chain link, the chain link fence yeah. with the barbed wire on top? Yeah. So that was, that was not there. No, it wasn't. There was nothing there. There was nothing. How long, ha- how long has it been? Like, when was this? It's been s- at least... Two months or three months. So I'm just wondering how long it's going to be there. <laughs> so, so, even when, so what year did you move here? 1958. 58. Yeah. So almost, almost 60 years ago. It was 57 years ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. And even in, even in the 50s, there was a large gay community here. And what, what else was Silver Lake known for back then? The view. <laughs> I don't know. It's just lovely. You know, anything that's nestled in hills and especially around a lake. So I'll tell you what it was like to me. It was just a lovely area, at least as nice as it is now. There are a lot of gays in the neighborhood. Whenever you, whenever you have a lovely view or hills or whatever, in my experience, you find a lot of gays because they, they often have such good taste. I don't know if that's not a proper thing to say, but it, that's my experience. So, Has it always been, I mean, right now Silver Lake, when I first moved here in the 90s, it was a bit more, maybe you want to call it bohemian, or it wasn't quite as well-to-do as it is now. Right. Has it, it has it always, like, how has that well, over it's the... It's always 
had a little bit of that gypsy quality to it. But even way back then, it's always been kind of bohemian chic, attracting artists of a certain caliber, let's say. Her house, this house, she felt was way too beautiful for her and her new family. Across from the lake, you know, it seemed so special. We thought it would be completely out of our range. But the man who owned it, the original owner, had a heart attack and he had to get out. He couldn't handle the stairs. And he had it listed <laughs> for $30,000, but we couldn't afford it. <laughs> Can you imagine? And they, he didn't sell it right away, and he was in a big hurry. He reduced to 26. And so we offered 21.5 because it was the most we could possibly put together. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah. That was a lot of money. And that's what this house cost. How long are you going to stay in this house? Well, you're talking to someone who's 90. When I first broke my hip, my daughter was very anxious for me to go into a retirement place. If you were to sell it today, you'd make quite a return on it, I think. Probably close to a million dollars now. But nobody wants me to sell the house. The kids who grew up here, they love the house. We, en we ended up in a house that we never in the wor world would have imagined that we could afford. It was just one of those flukes. This man had a heart attack, and he needed to get out of the house. There's a place just a few doors up from here where a girl I once loved lived. There's another on the hill over there where my best friends conceived and raised their first child. How many walks around this reservoir with my wife, my kids, my friends? I remember when the backdoor bakery opened and then closed when the coffee boutique down the street opened up. I remember Spaceland and Nettie's and Michelangelo's. I remember when a friend of mine took a sublet after she left her boyfriend and it just happened to be across the hall from this place where I used to hang out with these radical poets. Across the hall and 15 years. I'll tell you a secret. If you go late at night after the construction crews have gone home, it's not too hard to slip between the gaps in the fence and go sit in Eve Brenner's old glider. But just like her, I have no idea how much longer it'll be there. Not two miles south of here, and about 16 months ago, a woman named Kathleen Fox was looking for a place to rest for the night. She prefers the name Cat, and she found a place here, this quiet little street that runs under the 101. Well, it would be quiet if it wasn't for the 200,000 cars passing overhead every day. This is where we're supposed to dump our trash, right over here. They come like every Wednesday and they pick up our trash. So we have trash, this is where we try, I try to get everybody to put it. but. These are all grown-ups here, and they're going to do what they want to do, you know? I try to keep it clean, and it just doesn't work. Kat's got a blue tent that she runs a store out of, selling chips and sodas. She's trying to stay off the H by taking methadone every day, and if she can do that, she's on a waiting list to get out from under this bridge. Could we, could we like, could you sort of give me a little tour of this place where we are right now? Um, sure. That's my neighbor. There's two more dogs that live here, two big pit bulls friend of mine named James and there's another girl that lives here with her boyfriend and that's Tasha she lives right here and this is Karen we just seen Karen this is her little area 
She has this for to go sit in when she's not in her tent. And this is Precious. This is Precious. That's Precious's boyfriend. And this is my friend Spice. She lives right here. And this is another homeless lady that lives right there. That's a dreamer. And what, what are the, you said that there are rules for the police and rules for the yeah, neighbors. What are the rules? The rules are that you got to have room for a wheelchair to fit down the sidewalk because people are walking in the streets because I think they feel like they're walking in front of our house, you know? They don't want to walk in our doorway. If you're going to do drugs, do them inside your tent, you know? Um, just basically try to keep it clean so the neighbors don't have to see it. Stay out of the neighbor's yards, you know? You don't have no business in there. And like I tell the neighbors, if you catch anybody from our street in their yard, come and let me know, and we'll get rid of that person. And I have. have you, do you talk to all the neighbors? Like, there, So there's like an apartment building over here. There's some houses. lady right there, that apartment building lady right there, she gives me money every couple of weeks, you know, to keep like in front of her area nice and clean, which that's what I do. And I try to keep the trash area clean because her husband parks his truck right up here. And... There's a lady that lives in the apartment building down there at the end. She comes every Sunday, and she cooks for everybody, and I serve everybody, you know. Um, different people come and drop food off all the time, and we all share it, you know. It's just like a family, I guess. Sometimes I cook, and I give everybody some food, you know. I'll say one, two, three, four of the tents around here are basically like family to me. Do you have happy times under under this bridge? The only thing that makes me happy is my dog, I think. He he makes everything okay. He he's the reason I wake up in the morning. He's such a love bug. And what's really going to make me happy is when I get a place for us to live off the street. And that's when I'm going to really be happy. I've already started changing my life. I I've, I've gotten off the heroin. I'm taking the methadone. I'll probably do that for a year before they'll take me in off that, which is okay with me. Just like the doctor said, you didn't get strung out overnight. It's going to take longer than you think to, you know. So, and it's been keeping me off the heroin. That's all I care about. Will you miss any of the people here when you get off the street? Maybe Karen, because me and Karen, we go back years. We go back at least 20-some years. But that's probably it. You think you'll come back to visit? Maybe, maybe not. I might bring some food down here. But um, that's a slim maybe. Okay. You don't have to talk to the microphone. You can just talk to me. Okay. Okay. Um, when did you first move to L.A.? In 2001, right after September 11th. I was living in New York, and I was coming out for 20th Century Fox. They f they were like, oh, my God, she just survived September 11th as if I had been, like, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, they really treated me like I had been in the buildings or something, and they put me up in a hotel for, like, three weeks and let me get massages, and the studio paid for everything, and... That was how I moved to L.A. Mimi Munson's got one of those Hollywood move-to-L.A. stories. Project turned into projects, weeks into months into years. Um, when was the first time, or when was the first time that L.A. felt like home to you? Yeah, it took a really long time. I, I felt like a complete alien here for 
um, let's see. So that, that, so I was on like a big, long business trip for, for a long time. That was about 2001, two, three, four, five. Then I met, I had my first real boyfriend here in 2005. And then I got pregnant um, when we'd been going out for about a year. And when I got pregnant, I was about to break up with him. And it would seem like a really terrible idea. But he was so passionate about keeping the baby that we ended up being in this sort of reverse of the cliche, you know, where I didn't, I was super scared and didn't think it was a good idea. And he really, I mean, he was in tears like daily. It took us two months to decide because I found out really early. And then, um, I decided that I really wanted to give him a chance and give the baby a chance. And, um, I, I was scared, but I felt like, you know, taking a risk on life was better than taking no risk on life, you know? So, you know, when he had a job and, you know, it seemed like we were, we were 33, you know, it's sort of like, Anyway, it turned out to be the best thing because I have my daughter now and I never would have had her. And I would say the first time I ever felt at home here, this is a long answer because even you'd think it would be like when my daughter was born and then I'm here. No, it was sort of the opposite because our marriage really exploded after the baby was born. It couldn't, he, it, it was, it was a nightmare. And so finally it got really dangerous and I had therapists also who were mandatory reporters at the time, different people in my life who said that they were going to have to report it if I didn't do something. So I had to leave. But the house never felt like a home to me anyway because I was so, it was so scary there. So then we went to an apartment, we went and lived with our friends, but we were living in somebody else's house and then... I went and I lived in an apartment after we left their house, but then somebody who was actually like seriously mentally ill moved into the apartment next door and was harassing us. He was psychotic, actually. So that was really bad. So I felt like I just couldn't find a safe place like in the freaking world. And my daughter was 17 months when I left my ex-husband and then she was growing, right? So she was two and a half and I still hadn't found a place. So I got a small settlement from the short time I was married. And uh, I searched all of LA County for a place. And then I finally found this house, which was a, so such a horrible mess. It was so cheap and it was such a horrible nightmare inside the house that nobody else put an offer on it. <laughs> Which and in LA at that time, in LA in general, that's like unheard of. I mean, it was disgusting. You couldn't even walk into the house. It was like animals. It was sort of like it seemed like a very similar mess to my life at that time, basically. <laughs> like the the uh, the owners had just recently died in the house, and they were in their nineties, and they had I think somebody told me they had 30 cats in the house and also 10 dogs and they, they, they never left the house. So the entire house was covered in animal feces. they luckily there were like 10 layers of old wall to wall carpet as well. <laughs> so that saved the floors because <laughs> every time they put in a new carpet, they would just put it on top of the old one. <laughs> Saves work, right? 
the um the whole back of the house had been ripped off and there was a shell on the back but the ceiling was really beautiful it was like this cathedral ceiling with beautiful old pine and these big beams and so I did it it didn't scare me I guess is what I'm trying to say you know and the house was so cheap that with my little amount of money from the settlement I could buy it and then get a cash out mortgage and then use the money to renovate the house to make it little livable and little by little I would earn a little more spend a little more on the house earn a little more spend a little more we got rid of the rodents and all the feces and we tore out all the terrible flood damage and all the had to rewire it because it was a knob and tube wiring from like 1915 and turned out part of the house had burned down at one point so we had to rebuild some of the rafters and a lot of the supporting beams and the foundation was horrible we had to rebuild the foundation it was like one thing after another Um, but I found these wonderful people. See, the thing is, because my story was so, um, meaningful to people, you know, people helped us for very little money. And we met wonderful people who are still like our best friends. Like every, it wasn't like, oh, the guy is here to do the foundation. It was like our friend Leonard is coming to help us with the foundation and we're going to make dinner for him. And we're going to talk about what his life was like in the Philippines. And we're going to like... It became like this incredible community project where people from all over the entire world who had been immigrants at various times, you know, we all felt sort of homeless and the house became a home because of those people coming and loving us really, like being generous with us for no reason, you know, and they didn't have to, I guess is what I'm saying. So anyway, the day that we first moved in um, was like the first time I ever felt that I had my own home in the world, really any ever in my entire life. It was the first time. Yeah. And that was also thanks to LA, you know, because the project had been so much like created by that cross section of people who feel a little lost in Los Angeles, you know, who've come here from other places. And it's not like New York where you kind of get swept up in the, the identity of the city. You know, I feel like in L.A., it takes a while to create your identity here because there's so much vast space to lose yourself in all the options, basically. So um, anyway, that was uh, that was a really profound moment for us and uh, for my daughter, too. Do you remember what, what day was that? Yeah, it was March 21st, 2011. How long do you think you'll be here? That's uh, a great question because, you know, the market is obviously very high. You know, I came in at the very bottom of the market and the house is worth triple what I bought it for now. Which I have mixed feelings about, you know, in some ways I wish it wasn't because it wouldn't even, I would never sell it. I mean, my plan was to stay here for the rest of my life and die here you know which is what everybody else who's ever owned this house has done it's only that I'm only the fourth owner and it was built in 1906 so there's a tradition in the house of like you move in when your children are young and you stay until you're in your 90s (laughs) right that's the plan (laughs) so yeah financially it would be super smart for me to sell right now but I know I I don't want to so I think that I'm probably going to be here for a long time. All the real estate agents come over and try to pressure me. <laughs> and I'm like, 
yeah i know that'd be cool i'd love to have a lot of money but i don't need a lot of money i need a home <laughs> i need this home it's like my base my safe this is like my refuge so i don't think i want to leave We've been almost eight years in the house my family lives in now. My kids' first days are here. Our friends have filled it with love and laughs, sometimes drama, but we try to keep that to a minimum. Last fall, a guy tried to get me to move to San Francisco for a job, and it almost worked. I was there most of the spring with the idea that I'd do the groundwork and the family would follow. But it didn't work out. While I was there, I walked into this building at 111 Sutter downtown. It was built in 1925, and it's this total mishmash of styles. Late Gothic, Deco, French Renaissance Revival. The lobby's tiny, filled with gilded religious symbols and wrought iron fleur-de-lis. When you stand in the back, the two-story windows at the entrance are perfectly reflected on the polished marble floor. Well, almost perfect. Right in the middle, between the four elevator doors, there's this one imperfection, a divot. You can watch the light circle around it as you move around the room. It makes this dark hole in the otherwise mirror image. At first, I couldn't believe it. Why wouldn't they fix that? It's literally the only thing wrong. I later found out that for more than 50 years, a man, one man, stood there in the middle of the floor. He was the elevator captain. He'd welcome you to the building. He'd ask you where you're going. He'd turn, pivot, and direct you to the proper elevator door. He worked there from opening day in 1926 until he retired in 1978. Even that day was a long time ago. After I found that out, I made a trip back over there, and I stood there in that garish lobby with my foot in his hole. I turned, pivoted. I tried to imagine what this place must have been like for him. I wondered what he thought about on his first day, on his thousandth day, on his ten thousandth. When did he notice that he was messing up the floor? Did he try to hide it from his bosses? When I got back to LA, I started noticing all the places everywhere that hold these kinds of marks. All these ghosts that have spread across the landscape. And everybody else's ghosts, too. They're all there, even though I'll never know them. Do places get reckoned in the Book of Life? What does St. Peter think about Cliff's Edge, about Mimi's house, or the bridge under the 101? Has he even noticed Steve Brenner's glider? The other day I went back and looked at my old apartment. That first one, right around the corner from here off Griffith Park. It's got a new coat of paint, slightly greener. The banana trees are still there. When I moved out, I left a note on the top shelf of the bedroom closet, way up there in the back. I wrote about when we found our landlady's reading glasses on the kitchen table one day. I wrote about which neighbors were good people and which didn't seem to be. I wrote about the first party we'd had, why we moved out, and I wish the new tenants all the happiness that I'd had there. I wonder if anybody ever found that note. I wonder if it's still sitting there. The new green paint's pretty nice. This place looks really great.